Well, good morning. I ask you, if you will, to turn your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. This morning we'll be looking at 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 1, and we'll go through chapter 4, verse 5. So that means we need to get started. Have some space to carry. I was thinking about this week. This has been, as we, as Kevin mentioned at the beginning of the service, been a heavy week, so much going on in our country, even within our our own denomination, so many things happening that sometimes it can take your attention away from what we deal with and everything else and just kind of distract you from what we need to be focused on. And of course, then I remembered, uh, well, I was reminded that Thursday uh, day we don't really celebrate in our calendars as Baptists with no liturgy or anything like that, but Thursday was Ascension Day. Forty days after Christ Jesus died on the cross and rose again, it said he stayed on the earth teaching his disciples, stayed there teaching them, showing them the connections and how all of Scripture was pointing to him, giving them understanding of all that he taught and getting ready to send them out. That Thursday was the day that they walked up to the mount and he gave them that one last statement and then he ascended in back to heaven. That day is by all means as important for us as any other day that we recognize within our Christian history. Surely we thank God for Christmas Day, the day he sent his son to be one of us to take on flesh and we thank God for the cross, and we thank God for the resurrection, but we also thank God that Jesus Christ has ascended back to heaven and he sits on the throne. And he rules and he reigns and nothing can happen outside his power or his authority. And so as we gather here today, we live in the some 10 days in between Ascension Day and Pentecost. Pentecost Sunday's next Sunday some 10 days before that time. And we know at Pentecost, Christ Jesus having come, having uh, suffered, having died, having risen again, having ascended to the throne, Peter gets up, the Spirit now descends upon the church. The church begins there, and Peter announces from the prophet Joel that we are in the last days. And this matters for us, because the last days are not future, but they're present. They're now. And as Paul is writing to Timothy, he wants to remind him of this very thing. In chapter 3, Paul says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. 
Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and at Lystra which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. It is good for us this morning to hear your word read. It's good for us to sing the truth that we have already sung, Father. It's good for us to be reminded that Jesus Christ is on the throne and he rules and reigns. And in the midst of of a world that is full of suffering, sorrow, heartache, pain, God. We know that there is a hope. We know that there is a purpose in all of this, and that is to bring about your glory and to spread your name to the ends of the earth. And so, Father, may whatever happened to us, whatever come, whatever this week has brought, may that be what we do even now. May we gather in this place to glorify the name of Jesus Christ risen from the dead, reigning on the throne forever. God, we ask all of these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Paul ends the last paragraph of chapter 2 with a command about those who are in the snare of the devil. He finishes off and he says, uh, pray for them. In fact, he seeks to teach them, endure evil, correcting their opponents with gentleness, that God may perhaps grant, perhaps grant them repentance leading to truth, and they may come to the senses, escape from the snare of the devil after being captured to do his will. In other words, there are people out there that are being used by the devil to do his will. They stand in opposition with, from the gospel. They stand in opposition from the truth. So as he begins the next paragraph, he says, but understand this. No, there's people out there that are under the control of Satan himself that seek to do the opposite of the truth, and they seek to do Satan's will, but you understand this, he says. You understand that in these last days, there will come this time of distraction. 
In other words, for the Apostle Paul, as he begins this teaching to Timothy, he wants to let him know, remind him, that there are those in the world who are in active opposition to the gospel. This is a reminder, I think, that is vitally important for us today even. One that we must remember ourselves because we so quickly, speaking of myself also, we so quickly become distracted. We so quickly become moving, move away from what is true and what is right. We become distracted from what is before us. And these distractions seek to take our attention off the very battle that rages in front of us over the gospel and God's truth. But they're more than just distractions. There are people who are seeking to pull you away from the truth of God's word. More than just distracting you from the truth, they're actively seeking to pull you away from the truth. In fact, as Paul lays this out, he says, that's what the last days are going to be full of. That's going to be the great difficulty. Yes, there'll be sorrow. Yes, there'll be trouble. But there will be people who are actively seeking to pull you away from the gospel and get you to denounce the things of God and not follow after his word. They're going to be seeking to do just that. And that means that your stand up or your standing up for the gospel is going to mean ridicule, it's going to mean persecution, it's going to mean difficulty, it's going to mean strife, it's going to mean trouble for you. In fact, ridicule is what the best thing we can hope for. Persecution, even the worst, or suffering even coming. Paul is saying all of this is coming because they are going after you. And this is the nature of the last days, as Paul calls them. As Paul refers to him, as Peter refers to him, this is the nature of now. Christ Jesus has come. The battle has been won. The cross is over. It is finished. He has defeated sin and death. He's been raised again from the grave. He's now seated on the throne. And now the war still rages. We may think, as I said before, this is future, but this is present. He's talking about right now. They've been, these last days have come and we live in them. So what Timothy 3 describes is not future, but it is present, now as it was then. And the follower of Christ needs to know that this will not be easy. Times of difficulty will be upon us. Now let me say something to be clear here about preaching, or just to give you an insider look at me. It would be a lot easier for me not to preach about such heavy things. In all honesty, it would be great if I could come in and preach about really happy stuff. Y'all know what I'm talking about? If we could just talk and everybody leaves smiling and happy, and we could just talk about the happy stuff all the time. Like if I could give a positive pep talk, and anybody who knows me knows that's impossible for me to give. But if I could give some self-esteem motivational speech for you today and we can leave out of here happy and healthy. The worst Andy Griffith show that ever was was the time they went to church and that preacher preached and there wasn't any gospel in it. They all just felt happy when they left. And so ultimately, it would be easy for me to do simply that. To come in and make us feel good about ourselves and leave out. But as we know, this world is not our home. And what we recognize for the believer is that this is the worst it'll ever be. 
We're longing for a day that is far more glorious when sin has finally and completely been dealt with, when we are finally and completely with our Savior, where we are home with Him, where every tear has been wiped away. We long for that day, but until that day comes, we recognize the days will be difficult, Paul says. And friendship with the world is enmity with God. As Jesus said himself, the world hates me, it will hate you too. So to not preach this way or not to bring these things up would be for us to come in here and just simply practice our victory march and not prepare for battle. It would be for us to come in just simply practicing our our victory song and not getting ready for the war that rages. Because while we know Satan has been defeated, while we know that he understands that more clearly than all of us, while we know that he recognizes that hell is his destination and that's where he is going, his number one goal is to take as many of us with him along the way. And he will use anything and everything. He is patient with it all. His desire is to pull all of us down and take us with him into hell itself. And so even if he, as Jesus says in Matthew 24, even if he could take away some of the elect, that's who he's going after. Some of those that belong, if he can get them to fall, that's what he's going to do. That's what he's after. So the days are difficult for Paul, not because of persecution and suffering, but because of the warfare that takes place for the very soul and life of every single one of us that does not end on the day we confess our sins and trust in Jesus. In fact, it only gets more intense, Paul says. And so now we have heard the truth. We have believed the truth. Let's get ready for the battle until the Lord calls us home. Paul felt his job was to get Timothy ready for this. So the victory one day would be his. And always, as we know and understand, as Paul lays out, there will be people. Sometimes the devil's greatest weapon, relationships. There will be people that will seek to pull you away from the truth of the gospel. People that will seek to pull you down from that truth. And Paul says, let's get ready for that. First, he starts with some bad examples. When opposition comes, we'll see how that opposition looks. He starts with these bad examples in verse 2. For people will be lovers of self. I don't know if you recognize when I was reading this, it's a long list, right? Paul lays it out here to be clear. He wants to be clear about what kind of people these are that are opposing us. They'll be lovers of self. In fact, he starts with that one first, lovers of self, and then he ends with rather than lovers of God. So they're lovers of self rather than lovers of God. These bookend some 17 statements by Paul of what those who are opposing the gospel look like. And what is it that they do? This lover of self becomes the first phrase. It's at the very heart of what it means. They are proud. They are arrogant. They are abusive. He moves on. Not only they love self and what their actions are, then it goes out into how it hurts others. They are dishonorable to parents. Believe it or not, that's in the list, y'all. They're dishonorable to parents. They're heartless, ungrateful, unholy, they're unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control. This is how they act among others. This is how they live. They're disobedient in every way. And he moves and keeps going. 
even how into how they worship. They have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. What Paul says is the real problem at the heart of all of this is that people are utterly self-centered. They are utterly selfish and self-centered. They love self, they don't love God. And that's at the heart of those who oppose the truth of Christ. I've always had a phrase, if it is man-centered, it is bad. If it is God-centered, it is good. And what Paul says here are those who are opposing the gospel are radically self-centered. And from that selfishness comes pride. From that selfishness comes arrogance. From that selfishness comes abuse. From that selfishness flows all of these things. They are radically self-centered. Their worship reflects their selfishness as well. But what's scary for Paul is that they have the appearance of godliness. In other words, they, they seek to pose or set themselves up as someone who honors God. They seek to pose or set themselves up as someone who's righteous and who is good. But in reality, they are loving their self. This is what makes them dangerous. And in their godliness, they deny the very power of God ultimately. And so ultimately, Paul is saying that these are the ones we have to avoid. But what happens here? They want others to join in with them. In fact, these ones who are lovers of self actually proselytize. They're trying to bring others in. In fact, it says they do it in this way. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins led astray by various passions. They prey on the weakest among us. They prey on anybody they can, giving an illustration here. They prey on anyone they can to bring them into their own quote-unquote religion of self. Religion of, of, of lifting up self. They're bringing in anybody they can. They even go after the weak women, those that are weakest among them. They go after all of them to bring them in. Their desire is to bring more with them, Paul says. Their desire is to bring more amongst them. He uses an example here. Janus and Jambres who opposed Moses. Now, if you look in your Bibles, you won't find... Janus and Jambres there, but as, as much of history has shown, these are the two that many believe were the two sorcerers or magicians or priests of Pharaoh that whenever Moses was in there coming saying, let my people go, they then had this battle between them where the sword, uh, I mean, excuse me, the, the, um, the rod turned into a snake and Janus and Jambres opposed Moses there before Pharaoh. So we know that story, and what Paul is saying is, we look back at them as an example. They opposed Moses. They opposed what he says. But in reality, in every way, they were shown to be the ones that were powerless. In every way, they were shown to be the ones who have no strength and no power. They couldn't answer to the one true and living God. And even as you look at the plagues that followed this, we recognize that those plagues dismantle the gods of Egypt, showing they have no power. God is the one who rules and reigns over them. So Janus and Jambres tried this before. And what's going to happen next is all of those who are operating with that same mindset, that they're greater than God, they know more than God, they're more powerful than God, that they are more important than God, all of those that are operating from that selfish mindset, they too will be embarrassed one day. And he says, they'll be disqualified regarding their faith. They will not get very far for their folly will be plain to all. The problem is for Paul is that the folly is not plain to all right now. Some people fall for this. 
They fall for the selfishness. They fall for this idea. They are looking for any way they possibly can maybe to, 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 to not fall under the authority of the word of God. So they, they, they do whatever they can and they take whatever teaching they can get that just simply tickles their ears and makes them feel better about themselves rather than putting themselves under God's authority. And anybody who does that, he says, will be made a fool. Will be made a fool. There's no way that those who follow after the worldly passions, those who follow after the worldly trends, there's no way that they will ultimately and finally win. For the world is passing away. So Paul says in the middle of that paragraph, avoid such people. I've underlined it, I've highlighted it, all those kind of things, circle it, whatever you need to do in your Bible. Avoid such people. But there's also godly examples. And those godly examples that we can, Paul could have mentioned several. I mean, Timothy had them. He had his mother, he had his grandmother. He could have mentioned several godly examples. But Paul points to himself. This was not a matter of arrogance for Paul, but a matter of accountability. In other words, Paul is saying, you've heard me, now follow me. You know that I'm following Christ, now follow me. If I know that I'm not only responsible for myself, but others around me to not only get them somewhere, but get them to the final destination, right? If we're on a trip and I'm driving, it's my responsibility not only to get them there to the place we're going, but to get them there safely. And so that's why I always say the joke, y'all follow me and I'm driving, right? Because we know that's our responsibility. It's what we do. Paul's doing the same thing. I have accountability here. You can see my life. Follow after me. I hope that every single one of us in this room that claims Christ as our Savior could look to others and say, follow me because I'm following Christ. This is accountability for us. And Paul says the same thing. He says, we have good, faithful examples. Now follow me. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. Paul is here giving the evidence of a Christian life that's been lived. He says, you can look and see what my teaching was. You've heard my teaching. You've, heard, you've seen not only my teaching, but my conduct. Those two things, as we know in Scripture, go hand in hand. You cannot proclaim the gospel without words, and your words become meaningless if you're not living out what you're preaching and telling, right? If you're not living it out. Paul is saying, you've heard what I've taught, you've seen my conduct, and you've seen my aim in life. It's not to promote me. Paul is writing this from prison himself. It's not to promote me. It's not to promote what I'm doing. It's to promote the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've seen my faith in difficulty. You've seen my patience in hardship. You've seen all of this, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions. What a great testimony for discipleship for us because this is what it is. Paul has discipled Timothy and he lets Timothy see into his life so that what he preaches and what he proclaims can become testimony for, Paul, for Timothy later because he's seen him live it out and he's seen him preached it. And so he says, you've seen all of this. It's evidenced in his life. It's even evidenced in his persecutions and sufferings. Here, Paul could have mentioned so many different places that he was persecuted and suffered for the gospel. He could have mentioned Philippi, Ephesus, Thessalonica. He could have mentioned Rome. He could have mentioned a number of places. But instead, he reminds him of these three places. Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. Three places that Timothy were with him. Like a friend who's traveled together and got a lot of stories, right? We got a lot of stories. And when you have those stories, you don't need to rehash those stories. You just you remember what happened at Iconium? 
You remember what happened at Lystra? You remember what happened there in Antioch? You remember those, Timothy? You remember that we face persecution. Why? Because we preach the gospel of Christ Jesus. If we would have gone in there and preached self-centered religion, if we would have gone in there and tickled their ears, you think we would have been persecuted? They would have embraced us and they would love us. Instead, we went in there and we preached the gospel of Jesus Christ and they rejected it and turned against us. But some believed, right? Some believed. My first time preaching. My first time preaching overseas. 1995 was in a little town in Russia. We met, the whole village was there and I began to preach and I laid out the gospel. I was scared to death. I was 20 years old, so it was like 700 years ago or the late 1900s. And I was terrified. And I began to preach. All I knew was just to lay out the simple gospel, right? And I got to that first point. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. At that moment, every man in the room of some 150 people, every man in the room got up and walked out. I didn't know what I did. I mean, I'm thinking, thinking I've, been, I've said that many times before, right? I've said that over and over again. But here I come, and what am I doing? I'm proclaiming the truth of God, and it becomes what? Offensive to them. They got up and walked out. I'll never forget that day. I preached to the rest that were remaining, some children, some ladies. And seven ladies came up to me after it was over. All said, we want to believe. We want to believe. And I noticed there how the gospel works, right? Every time it's proclaimed, we've talked about this before, when we take the Great Commission seriously, there are going to be people who oppose it every single time. And that's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, they're going after this. Don't think you can just preach it and find no opposition. There will be opposition to the truth of God every single time. But some will believe, and what we fight for are those who believe. We endure persecutions. We endure hardships. The Lord will deliver us from all of those, as he says. What we fight for are those who will believe the gospel. That's what we fight for. These moments Paul and Timothy had together must have been some impression. For Paul just simply says, from them all, from all the persecutions and suffering, from them all the Lord has rescued me. And isn't that exactly what the child of God can say? Whatever has come by living out the gospel, by believing it, by trusting it, by living it, whatever has come to us, whatever difficulty, whatever sorrow, whatever hardship, even whatever persecution has come to us, the Lord has rescued us from all of it. And he will. Whatever difficulty, whatever pain, whatever sorrow. In fact, look at verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. What a statement Paul made. He makes it clearly. He, he, he stops. Paul, I don't know if y'all know, he's got long sentences in here, you know, where he does these long sentences. But every once in a while, he'll make this real short sentence, which reminds me that he wants you to hear this, right? He said it in the first one, avoid such people, simple sentence. He says it here, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. And I believe that is true. In fact, if we can look around the world today of those who are faithful Christians, not in our country, in other countries, it is true for every single one of them. 
We can see the persecuted church all over the place. I thank God this is Memorial Day weekend. I thank God for the freedoms we have in America that have been purchased and won for us through sacrifice, don't you? And so we're able to gather in this room with no threat of anybody from the government coming in telling us we can't talk about this. We're able to assemble together with no worry and all of those things. Why? Because these are freedoms that have been won. We believe there are some things worth dying for. And our freedom is one of those things. And we celebrate and give honor to all of those who have died for us to win and purchase those freedoms. And that's why we still gather in this room, not just to give glory to God. That's primary first and foremost, but also to exercise the freedoms that we have been given. We are here. And by that God's grace in America, we don't face persecution like other peoples do. So let me put it this way. If I can, Americanized version. Indeed, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will face opposition. You'll hear what I'm saying? You can't just simply say, it says we'll face persecution. I don't, I'm out. But what we do know is, even in America today, the gospel is under attack. Even in the country we love over and over again, the gospel and God's truth is under attack, under assault. We do know that. And if you desire to live a godly life in this world, in this place, in this town, you should know that you will face opposition. Just ask our children in the schools. Just ask some of our friends in the workplace. If you desire to live a godly life, you will face opposition. And what Paul is saying is if you're not, something's not clicking with how you're living. Because people will oppose the gospel. So how do we protect ourselves from this opposition then? Obviously, we don't follow evil leaders, sorry leaders, wicked leaders. We follow good, faithful leaders. But Paul says even in that, the leaders we must follow are the ones that have been teaching us and proclaiming the word of God. And so first, we face this opposition by continuing in the word of God. You've heard the word, he says. You've heard it from the beginning. Continue in it. Here becomes the standard by which we live. Here becomes the standard by which we focus. Continue in the word. He says this very thing in verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and heard firmly and believed knowing with whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It is the word of God that brings salvation to his people. It's God's word that has everything we need for life and salvation. If you won't know how to be saved, it's because the word of God has told us how to be saved. And what we know, we wouldn't know if it wasn't for the word of God. If it wasn't for the word of God, we wouldn't know our desperate need of hope. We wouldn't know our desperate need to be redeemed from sins and death. We wouldn't know of those things. But the word has taught us all that we need to know, to know where to put our trust and where to put our faith and what is true. It's taught us all of that. So continue in that, he says, for this word is breathed out by God himself. Look at verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 
Here it's speaking how what we have in the scriptures are God's word to us, breathed out by God. The word that we have received is finally and exactly as the Lord intended it. We call this verbal plenary inspiration. Every word has given to us by God's spirit. Every subject it touches on, it speaks the truth, and we know the truth. It does not mean we can't learn from other places. It does not mean we can't learn from other books. It does not mean we can't learn things from other on other other subjects and other things. What it does mean is that all things in the world fall under the subjection of the word of God. Wherever we find it, wherever we learn it, it comes back to this. For this is God's word, the creator, the maker of heavens and the earth, the one who sustains it all. This is his word. This becomes the standard for all things. And this word is powerful and sufficient. As he says, it's able profitable, able for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It's enough for us. As we said before, it gives us life and salvation. It's enough. It's all that we need. Everything falls under the authority of this word. By the way, I believe this is the crux of the matter. People who are lovers of self do not want to put themselves under the authority of the word of God. This, I believe, in our day and age is the very hinge crux of all of it. If this is God's word, then it has authority for us. And we have to put ourselves under this authority. If it is not, we're free to be lovers of self, lovers of money. Move away from it. Paul says this is where it is. It's the word of God that is the foundation for the truth that we build upon. It's the word of God that is the, is the roof that we put ourselves under its authority. It covers us from beginning to end, all for us. We look to it first and we look to it last, God's word. Opposition is here. They're coming for each of us. Continue in the word. Don't let them pull you away to it as well. Finally, Paul doesn't just stop there. Evil men and women, as he said before, are seeking to make converts. They're seeking to pull people to themselves. In fact, it tells us down, verse 3, for a time was coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. So not only are the teachers seeking to pull others like these weak women it talks about into their world and try to, try to make them their disciples, these lovers of self, not only are they doing that, but also people are looking for others that can just tickle their ears and not tell them the hard things, tell them the difficult things. We, 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 we don't want to deal with that. Just tell us everything's okay and we'll be fine. But what the gospel says is that everything is okay in Christ. And here's how you find him. And so you can't just go after tickling and itching ears. You have to go after truth. And what, what Paul says is it's not just that good that we just continue in the word. We must also preach the word. In other words, they are active to make converts to themselves and take others with them to an eternal hell. We must be active to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ so others would believe and know the truth and eternal glory. We have to battle the opposition that's coming. We continue in the word and we preach the word. Charge here is received. Be ready in season and out of season. There is a judge we all have to answer to, and that is Jesus Christ the Lord. Be ready and preach 
the word. Always be ready at every moment. I'm not talking about just simply you stepping up here to this pulpit to proclaim the word on Sunday. Don't worry about that. What I'm talking is that every single time it comes to you that you make a stand for the truth of God's word, be ready to make that stand. Speak it. Preach it. Be ready to do it. Stand on it. Always be ready. Do it patiently, for we know that we're dealing with difficult things. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And do it wholeheartedly. As he says in verse 5, As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of evangelists. Fulfill your ministry. Do it with everything you've got. Notice that the preaching of the word goes hand in hand with a life lived for the glory of God. Paul says, be ready for that always. Opposition is here. And in a world of opposition, in a world of opposition, we know that every day over every soul, a battle is raging. I don't want to minimize that. At the same time, I don't want to do any any fear-mongering in that. I just want you to simply know what the Scripture says. That every single soul is an eternal soul that will either spend eternity in heaven or an eternity in hell. That will either honor the Lord God Almighty and Jesus Christ, his son, serve him and follow him and find all the satisfaction and glory they can long for. Or they'll seek to honor themselves and spend eternity in hell away from God. Every single one of us has that battle raging over us. And in this world of opposition, hear what the Lord Jesus Christ says. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. They follow me. In a world of voices out there calling us to come, pulling us away, trying to get us to one thing or another, trying to take us down this path or that path. In a world of voices out there that are trying to tickle our ears and itch them and do whatever they can do to get us to come to their side. In a world of all of that chaos and voices, Christ Jesus is calling, come follow me. Come to me and I will make you, I'll make you mine. He's calling us at that very moment. And his sheep hear his voice and follow him. Is that you today? Do you hear the calling of Christ Jesus? Are you following after the one that can lead us safely home? Or are you just looking to tickle your ears, hear what you want to hear, to still stay and remain in self-righteousness that cannot save you? In a world of opposition, do you hear the Savior calling? It was this passage. It was this passage here in 2 Timothy chapter 4 that the Lord used to call me. As I said before, late 1900s, 1994, August 5th. I cannot remember what the preacher was preaching, so there's an encouragement to all of (laughs) y'all. But I remember who was preaching, and I remember they turned to this passage. And I remember as I was sitting there, maybe in la-la land, have no idea. But the Spirit of God started speaking to me. And what I heard over and over again was preach the Word. Preach the Word. Preach the Word over and over and over again to the point where submission was not anything in question. And my prayer for us is hopefully today that maybe one of you can hear that same calling, right? 
Maybe one of you can say, that needs to be me. And before you say, I'm too old, my granddaddy at 60 surrendered to the ministry and pastored the church for 25 years. Before you say that's not me, I was 19 years old and had no clue what to do. I don't say this out loud to anybody, but my first semester in college, I had a .7 grade point average. You want me to preach the word, God? So, here today, that there is a world of opposition out there against Christ and against his gospel, and it is seeking to pull you away from him. Do you hear his voice and are you following him? But not only that, there are many preachers of self out there. We are desperate for those who would preach Christ Jesus. Maybe that's you. Let's pray today. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the spirit that works to call us out of darkness and into marvelous light. We thank you for the word that does not come back null or void. But that word, Father, that word is moving and active even now. And there's some hearts in this room that for the first time they're hearing the calling of the Savior, Jesus Christ. And God, I pray that in a world of many voices in opposition to the gospel, they would hear the great shepherd say, come to me. And today they would come. Giving up self, pursuing after Christ. God, I pray even in our church that there will be some that you would raise up here just as you called me and our other pastors and others that are preaching the gospel around us this, this morning, Father, that you would raise them up and they would hear the calling that you said, preach the word in their heart and surrender their life to do just the same. God and standing here nobody in this room knows it more than me but we are all desperately desperately in need of the spirit your spirit to work in our hearts even now for your word and your spirit changes lives and so do what you do even now as we stand together and sing all for your glory we pray amen let's stand together